1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. T. Colin Campbell. He's the founder of the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutritional Studies and the online plant-based nutrition certificate, uh, all of it in partnership with eCornell. So, uh, Dr. Campbell uh, has been in Human Health for over 60 years working. His primary focus is on the association between diet and disease, uh, particularly cancer. So, Colin, thanks for coming.
2: Well, thank you very much for the invitation.
1: Well, tell me about your um, your career and your history. What got you into uh, looking at nutrition instead of, you know, allopathic traditional medicine?
2: Almost accidentally, I uh, was raised on a farm, milking cows. That's very germane to my story. And, uh, at that time, as far as nutrition was concerned, I didn't know that much about it. But uh, we were producing uh, milk primarily for its calcium and protein content. It's you know said to have high protein. So in any case, I, I went away to school, to graduate school. I did my doctorate dissertation uh, in an animal nutrition department at Cornell University. And uh, it was uh, focused on the idea of promoting uh, consumption of more animal protein, you know, that really treasured nutrient, if you will and uh, that's what i did and then when i took my first faculty position i was still with that in mind same thing in mind Uh, i was uh, in charge of a program in the philippines uh, feeding malnourished children malnourished children is that uh, in our community in the nutritional science community they were not getting enough uh, protein high quality protein if you will from animal sources and so that was our charge Uh, But in reality, what I saw there was some evidence to indicate that the few children in that poor country uh, who were consuming protein like we do in the West, they had a higher risk of liver cancer of all things. And uh, then there was an experimental animal study in India showing with experimental animals the same thing. Animals were more susceptible for rapid growth of liver cancer if they were consuming higher animal-based protein. So I had a challenge. Uh, Do I proceed ahead with my colleagues in making sure these kids got enough protein or should we do some research on that? So I organized an experimental research program back in my home laboratory, fully funded with uh, NIH public funding, if you will, uh, and worked at that for, gosh, I got the grant, kept getting uh, money, adequate funding, more than adequate actually, and uh, learned as much as I could about this question. Does animal protein cause cancer? The answer, very briefly, is yes. emphatically, I should say. I was challenged in my own life, my own views, my own education. And uh, so I kept at it. There was a lot of students over the years. I published extensively. I eventually was on uh, government uh, policy boards, all sorts of things like that, that we tend to do in science. And uh, the further I got into this, this story and learning so much about it, not just about animal protein itself, but also about the entire medical system and the way we actually tell the public the information we tell them. Uh, the more about, I got into it, I realized there's a serious problem here in this country, a Western country. We tend to, uh, you know, tell the tell the wrong thing. We've been doing it for a long time. So that's my story. I right?
1: question about the animal protein um, in the studies you've looked at, and you know, the studies you've done. Uh, was there a differentiation between animals that were raised, you know, with or without? antibiotics and hormones and, you know, on concentrated feeding lots versus, let's say, grass-fed animals?
2: We didn't do that directly, but I can give you, a, I think, pretty informed uh, answer on that because I'm from the farm and I know that field quite well. Uh, no, there's no difference. The difference that has been discussed in the public basically has to do with the kind of fat that these animals have. Now, that is animals in the feedlot as opposed to animals in the pasture. And uh, that that's not really where the the message is the message has to do with the animal protein that's the same so uh there's really uh little or no difference between pasture fed animals and feedlot fed animals
1: okay and over time like what what has become your uh you know what has become the idealized diet is it is there one kind of diet that seems to be ideal for all people or are there multiple facets of uh you know a diet that are closely related
2: Well, basically, the first thing to know is that the process of nutrition, which is the biochemical stuff that's going on after the food is consumed, those biochemical processes is infinitely complex. And I want to emphasize the word infinite. Uh, There's so many reactions. We can't even know the number. We can't know all their combinations. So that's a given. It's very, very complex. But given that complexity, we also, from my point of view, uh, are able to extract from that very that enormously complex system some very simple ideas that is consistent with all that data essentially. Namely, two things as far as regular what we should be doing as humans. Uh, we should be, uh, uh, quite frankly, avoiding as much as possible animal-based foods. I'm really quite emphatic about that, even though I came from the farm and that was my cherished idea. But there it is.
1: Question: When you when you say animal-based foods, does that include like eggs or? Yes. dairy or fish yes. or you know certain animals
2: yeah the the whole lot uh especially starting with dairy which i was raised on but i mean that's that's a problem a big big problem and so animal based foods are distinguished from plant based foods in the sense that animal based foods have a kind of protein that's different in its biochemical activity than plant based food that's that's number one that's that's message number one avoiding animal based foods Number two and there's only i only have two just to simplify that enormous complexity. The second idea is eating whole foods we've gotten in the habit our corporate the corporate world especially with their participation we've gotten in the habit of consuming foods that might be called plant based and i am the one who came up with that word plant based by the way back in the seventies but in any case, with that when we we think that we we can take some pieces of some parts of the plants and some nutrients out of the plants and put them all together. And and make uh, what I call convenience foods, or you know the stuff that we like, you know, we get addicted to. What happens in that process? The the corporate world wants to sell their stuff, so they kind of load it up with free nutrients that are addictive: salt, refined sugar, and fat. I mean, we have a we have a natural tendency to want to consume more of that. The more we want, the more we we consume. That's a problem. So two things: avoid animal foods, avoid avoid the uh, sweets and stuff like that as much as possible. And I know that's harsh. That that's a harsh message for a lot of people. But here's here's the here's the kicker. When we do that, we now have evidence we can treat heart disease. We can reverse it essentially totally for almost everyone. We can reverse diabetes, especially type two diabetes. And in my research, the key thing that I ran across now 40, 50 years ago, is that we it it also controls cancer. And uh, we could turn on cancer by Experimental animal system, we could turn on cancer by giving them more animal protein. We could turn it off right midstream by switching to a plant based protein. And so we could turn it back and forth. I mean, it was just remarkable. And uh, we did a lot of that kind of research in the laboratory. And we found that the way it works in the body, biochemically, involves all those reactions sort of working together, quite frankly, in a very almost like a symphonic way, like a great uh, musical composition as long as we give it the right food. And, and with all that in mind, by the way, let me add one more thing. And that is, I, I went to China because we touched base with the Chinese. This is early on in the, about 1980, 81, when our two countries are first starting to talk to each other.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show.
2: And I had a shot. One of their senior scientists came to work in my lab, and uh, I heard that uh, they had, in 1975, say 76, recorded how much disease occurred in different parts of the country, 2,500 different counties, more or less. And they measured how much of all these different diseases existed. So we went to China. And with, uh, it became the first research project between the United States and China. And also got Oxford University involved, too, so they became a partner. And uh, we went there and surveyed a total of 170 villages all over the country. The New York Times called it the uh, most comprehensive study done in history of medicine, which I think it still is. But we measured everything. We took blood samples and urine samples, food samples, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera and tried to determine you know, which which cluster of nutrient factors work best in preventing, and preventing disease? And it turned out the answer in that human study is the same thing I was getting in the laboratory. Animal-based protein, and that means animal-based food, basically, um, is a problem. That's when heart disease uh, risk begins to increase as soon as we start consuming that. That's when cancer is increased. That's when diabetes is increased. And now in the modern day, that's when the COVID-19 or the viral diseases like COVID-19 also increase. So I have to say this is, uh, I'm not saying it's just for my own personal sake, not the least, not the least bit, but I think it's one of the biggest stories ever. That's what a lot of my mates tell me.
1: Is there a distinction in your observation between a vegetarian and a vegan diet, and which one is more similar to the protocol that you found works best?
2: Yeah, I didn't get into this for either of those reasons, vegetarian or vegan. In fact, Uh, When I was first doing this back in the late 70s and early 80s, my labs were really getting into it pretty deeply. And I started talking about this plant-based thing. That's one of the questions I was asking. I didn't identify with the vegetarian diet because 90% of the vegetarians are still using. That's a problem. That's a big problem. Uh, Later on, the word vegan came to my attention about 15 years later. I didn't identify with that either because like the vegetarians, uh, those groups of people tend to uh, get enthused about this kind of, that kind of food, because for, for animal rights reasons. That's fair enough. I mean, animal rights, uh, it, it deserves attention, deserves attention. But that's not what what I was doing. I was doing the science, the basic science, and publishing it extensively. And so the vegan diet has no animal food in it. They don't wear, you know, clothing even that's made of animals. But in any case, the vegan diet, the vegetarian diet, those two uh, ideas sort of very comparable in many ways. They turn the people become vegetarian and vegan. They still end up consuming a lot of added oil and sugar and salt, even though they may cut down on animal food, except for dairy in the case of vegetarians. So they get, they have some gain in their health, some gain, but uh, they don't have the kind of gain I'm talking about. And so I I don't. Uh, this is not this is not equivalent to vegetarian and vegan diets. It's similar to in some respects, obviously, but uh, it's not the same thing.
1: Well, on on your protocol, do people have to supplement? Are they missing anything in in the particular diet you advocate or no?
2: No, except for one nutrient that some of my colleagues promote is vitamin B12. B12 is produced by microorganisms in the soil and most particularly in microorganisms in the rumen of animals. And so you'll see a little B12 in, B, in uh, meat, for example, or milk. And so it'll get advertised that way. A great source of B12, so to speak. Well, that's that's really the tail wagging the dog. So a little B12 uh, on a regular basis. I, I'll go along with that. But uh, the, the supplements themselves, the vitamin supplements, no, that's not part of this game plan. Uh, in fact, supplements, I must tell you, and I was deeply involved in that because I was the the uh, They actually, this was a label that was called Star Witness. I was a star witness for the Federal Trade Commission in Washington back in the 80s when that industry was first starting. And and what, what that means is that I was the one sitting in the docket evaluating the claims were being made by that new industry. They weren't correct.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: After that, during the late 80s, 90s, on to the early 2000s, A lot of studies were done testing nutrient supplements as to what they were thought to be doing. And uh, in some cases, uh, they did the opposite. They were more harm than good. Most of them were no good. They didn't do what they were thought to do. So I'm not a fan of the supplements as much as they wanted wanted to be involved. But no, that that doesn't work that way.
1: Well, I have a question. I've interviewed some people that, um, you know, I've interviewed people that, let's say, they advocate a vegan diet. And they have like hundreds or thousands of testimonials and good results. But I've also interviewed people that say, oh, the keto diet's the way to go or, you know, the carnivore diet. And they also do seem to have a lot of testimonials and people that are doing well. But why why would that be?
2: Well, you have to remember, this is a corporate world. And uh, when people start making those claims, I've been right in the middle of that, too, especially on behalf of uh, organizations that look out for, you know, health claims, if you will. When people are selling something, uh, I think you would... uh, probably accept this. When people are selling things, they don't, they're not totally objective. Let's just say it that way. They'll go over the line and they'll they'll push the limit as far as they can go. And so they will find people, and this this is an honest uh honest attempt on their part, I'm sure. They'll find people who go give testimonies, right? And uh and those testimonies are coming from people who, yes, they changed their diet to whatever they decide to change it to. And you know, on some occasions they actually saw some benefit because maybe they're doing something really bad. They and they uh, they changed that and, and saw what they saw. And I'll give you an example. The Atkins diet, you might have heard of that, uh, yep. started back in the 70s. That morphed into the so-called keto diet. It morphed into the paleo diet. It morphed into the low-gluten diet, et cetera. The Atkins diet w- was a diet that was uh, heavy in animal foods and fat, and so that is the system. That's the system we're living in. And so, when information started to come along in the '80s, especially, or so even in the '70s, that maybe a plant-based uh, diet might be a little better, there was big pushback uh, from the industry, and I know that firsthand. Uh, and they really pushed back, and understandably so. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't want creating, I'm not making any decision, value judgments on that point. I just want to say, in the fact, they pushed back real hard. And uh, eventually, when I had become fairly well-known in this field, they really took it on me, I, I have to tell you. And uh, so they'll find their test, they'll find their people to, maybe it's sometimes getting paid. In fact, I know that some, you know, they'll offer some pay for that kind of testimony. Uh, but then there's some people really honestly believe that. Uh, because when they start, let's say, and even an Atkins diet, the worst of all diets, when they start doing that, they're usually overweight. And uh, what happens is that uh, they start that diet, uh, their total calorie intake drops, So they lose some weight. That's pretty consistent. And for a little while. And so the people get really excited and understandably so. My God, it's, it, it makes sense. Uh, but the reality is that, that diet they're using is a very high protein, animal protein, high fat diet. They don't stay on it for more than a few months and they quit and they go back. Uh, and I might tell you too, that Atkins himself died of heart disease uh, early on. He, he was not working, didn't even work in the nutrition area to be honest about it. You know, those, those claims are, I'll put it mildly, they're a stretch. That so what,
1: what have you observed throughout the studies of people that have uh, significant amounts of animal protein? What well, tends to happen to them versus people that are plant-based?
2: Well, uh, we have a lot of good data that's been pu- published over the years by various sundry kinds of scientists, uh, all the way back to at least the 1950s and or so. And and the data I'm ta- I want to bring to your attention is the fact that if you compare, for example, countries across the world, uh, you know, countries that have good data, if you compare, for example, the amount of animal protein they consume all the way from countries that have almost none to those like us, you know, consuming loads of animal protein. If you compare those countries, what you see is really remarkable. It's a straight line linear regression, you know, as as one starts seeing, putting animal protein into the, into the diet from those countries who have almost, almost none, it's a straight line relationship starting right from zero or approximately zero. So as soon as you start putting in some, you know, it, it's a it's a straight line, you know, right on up to the highest levels of uh, colon cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer, uterine cancer, heart disease, stroke, on and on and on. And so those those kind of studies have been published in the last 50 years, 60 years. But oftentimes they're published with what I call surrogate uh, indicators. They don't, they didn't always call it animal protein. What they called it was cholesterol. In other words, they should increased cholesterol consumption those diseases go up. Well, cholesterol consumption, cholesterol only comes from animal food. So it's really a surrogate measure for animal protein. Similarly, you'll see some studies that as you increase the saturated fat intake, which is more common in animal foods, of course, uh, you see the same thing. But once again, the saturated fat is not really causing a problem. Cholesterol is not causing a problem. It's the animal protein as a whole and uh, one of the things I should say is that people consume more animal food, they consume less plant food. So what we are actually looking at in those graphs uh, is that you see these straight line relationships, that's due to, number one, increasing consumption of animal foods and decreasing consumption of plant foods, combination that works wonders, you know, to uh, to increase problems as as you increase animal food, decrease plant food, you get a double whammy.
1: What, what is it biochemically that happens to animal proteins when you eat them to cause you a problem?
2: We studied that at a great length. And I had a number of students uh, who did their doctoral degrees with me and actually people beyond a doctoral, postdoctoral, principal, professors. We, we did that kind of research. And I, uh, back in the days when I used to think there was one, one mechanism, as we like to say, uh, there's a certain mechanism. We were hunting for the mechanism to account for this remarkable effect of animal protein, for example. And what it turned out after about 12, 13 years or so, and I published all this stuff at the time, uh, every time we looked for a mechanism, some people call it a key rate limiting mechanism. Every time we looked for one, we found one, essentially. After doing this really rather in-depth research, usually take two or three years just to work on one at a time. After doing this, it turned out all these mechanisms all were showing the same thing. They all changed. So all of them, all these so-called mechanisms, some of them, were operating in one organ and in another organ or what have you, different kinds of cells. They all were changing in a direction to cause the disease. It was quite a remarkable phenomenon that here you got, if you go into the forest, you got all the different animals there from elephants to mice because they're all sort of, you know, doing something together, like running from something. You know, there's something in common. Well, it turns out that the all these mechanisms were shifting, their activities in a way that actually promoted, in my case, experimental cancer. So it's not just one mechanism. And and in fact, that led to another kind of very, very startling idea, namely, the entire drug industry in our country is dependent, almost and almost totally dependent on using chemicals, foreign chemicals, we call them drugs, using those drugs to attack what we call targeted mechanisms. It's called targeted drug therapy. You can you you can uh, talk to people in the drug industry. They will talk tell you about the marvelous things that drugs can do. This that and everything else. You're know, sort of targeting some particular mechanism. Statins is a good example, and it targets the mechanisms as and they then they advertise and talk about how that solves the problem they're concerned with. Like statins, you know, they prevent heart disease. What's well, kind of nonsense to be honest about it. You start looking at the data, and that targeted drug therapy, in fact. Uh, on occasion, we can see some short-term results that look kind of impressive, maybe a little longer term. But um, when when we realize that there are infinite numbers of mechanisms, what the body does, it may in the beginning show some evidence, that, uh, some benefit, but in the long run, not. Uh, I mean, a plant-based diet, the statins, just use that example, because probably one of the best, does not prevent heart disease like uh, heart, plant-based diet does, not even close. So that idea of working on multiple mechanisms and a symphony-like effect and so forth, it's a major challenge to the entire drug industry. We don't care for my work, to say the least. Hmm.
1: What have you noticed? Like, How long have you been eating this way? And what have you noticed personally with your own health now that you're 400 years old? I'm just kidding. But what what have you noticed? (laughs) You should tell people that. You should tell people you should wear a shirt and tell them you're like three or 400 years old. You're living proof that it works, you
2: know? Yeah, I, I'm not going to say that. You say, you say that. <laughs>
1: right, I'm just kidding. But but yeah, how long I, have you I, been eating this way? And what have you noticed personally?
2: Well, it's a good question. Uh, obviously, it was, a per- it was a personal question because, you know, as I'm learning this stuff, what do you do with it? I mean, do you start eating that way? Well, I'm married and uh, we've been, my wife and I have been married uh, just about 59 years now. We have four grown children, four grown children and 11 grandchildren. In any case, as I started Really getting pretty impressed with some of this stuff. In the late 70s, I should say, the early 80s, we started changing a little bit at a time. We started eating more salads. That usually meant chicken salad and tuna salad. But then we got got rid of that. We got rid of the, It took us about 10 years. And finally, about 1990, my wife, uh, at that point in time, she was doing quite well, but we got a, we got a surprise. She was diagnosed with advanced melanoma. We said, wait a minute, we're, we're getting into this thing pretty good why does she have that? I mean, that's a deadly cancer. So she went to the doctor, of course, and that's what they diagnosed. And and uh, by that time, uh, she, we were pretty close to almost, you know, we're almost there. Uh, and it turned out that that lesion that they diagnosed, melanoma there were a couple of interpretations of it. But nonetheless, they wanted to do chemotherapy. They wanted to operate on her and take out the lymph glands where, you know, the cancer had migrated to. And she said, no, I'm not doing that. Well, the oncologist kind of freaked out and thought she was nuts. Uh, I was there. I was only just being a husband. He didn't know who I was. But uh, so she didn't do anything for that advanced cancer melanoma, nothing. That's 17 years ago. And she's in good health, no drugs. She's 80 years old. I'm 87. And so it goes. I started changing. We started really changing. As I say, you could do the math. I We got to, totally changed in the early 90s. I was born in 1934. so. Whatever that turns out to be, we started you yeah, when I was fifty, more or less, and uh, by by you know late fifties I was pretty much there. I'm 87 now. Well,
1: what have you noticed when you went uh, you know when you completely went off animal protein? I mean, did you experience another step up in health and cognition or? Like, what have you observed over the past 30-something years?
2: Well, I've observed it a lot, but not just me, by the way. Uh, now there's a big movement, and lots of people have tried this and gotten remarkable results. But in any case, in my case, yeah, I uh, I continued to run, for example. Not a lot. I'm not a big runner, but I, I jogged, you know, four or five miles a day for quite some years. I've slowed down now recently. But, uh, yeah, I was saying, pretty healthy. And most importantly... I didn't have any evidence of heart disease at that time. By the way, when I was actually when I was forty-one, to be specific, when I came back to Cornell, I had to do a test, a medical test, because I was working with a toxic compound at the time. But so they measured my cholesterol, and it was two fifty-nine. And I knew enough then to say, "Wow, this will be high." Didn't like it. Doctor said, "No, you're okay. It's fine. Right normal range." Well, it turned out that. It's not exactly in the normal range. I, I could have been headed for problems. So I got that down over time. That's one thing that happened. And my dad had a heart attack when he was 70, 62. He was a farmer and he only had a couple of years of education, but he uh, he was a farmer and and otherwise in good health, slim, uh always outdoors, but he was eating the wrong food and he had a heart attack when he was sixty-two, and then he had a fatal attack when he was seventy. He was all hey. eating obviously this typical Western diet. His brother, my uncle, he had a fatal attack when he was 58. So my dad and his brother and their father, my grandfather, my grandfather had a stroke when he was 74. He was otherwise a healthy, you know, tough guy. Uh, but uh, there's some heart disease in my family. If you go, to the, if I go to the doctor, they say, oh, you got heart disease, you're at high risk. Well, I, I didn't want to particularly follow that path. And so my heart now, I just had a recent uh, echogram and EKG. And they say it's a good good shake. So I I don't know. That's a case of one. My, My wife had a lot of cancer in her family. She got diagnosed herself and she's 80. So, I mean, these are two personal stories where, you know, take it or leave it. That's not a very good idea to depend on just that, but it is kind of personal to say the least. Um, and uh, then when you look at other people, and I've known many, many people, thousands, actually, who I can say now who've you know switched and they've seen remarkable benefits. It's that simple.
1: If, yeah. if someone goes uh, halfway or three quarters of the way, what? how much benefit do they obtain versus going all the way and cutting it all out?
2: Well, that'll vary between individuals. We're all different. Some of us are more susceptible to this thing. And let's say others, that's for sure. So uh, it's a hard thing to do, just uh, to say, okay, 50%, 75%, uh, you know, what does that do? On, on, a, on a big scale, including lots of people, and you want to compare everybody, it doesn't do much. You might see a little bit of trends in the right direction, but not much. You really don't begin to see these kind of trends, you know, on a big scale, involving lots of people until you're at least, I'd say, ninety, at least 90, 95%. Of the way the hundred percent is the goal i I would argue because I don't see any evidence there's no evidence for eating animal food to get the protein that has absolutely been a, a a joke for for more than a century, and so we don't need it so then the question is well you don't need it, yeah, I like it you know I mean I know that from first firsthand experience you you want to stay with it if you will uh it's kind of hard to give up, but when you don't need it and then you find out that the whole way is wow, that's a new world. You know, why not, you know, go to the new world? I, I it's a it's it's maybe tough to adopt as I have learned over the years, obviously. Uh some people maybe will do it for a week or two and they see the results. They see their cholesterol drop like a rock. They'll see their blood sugar to go way down for the diabetics and things like that, right within uh, a day or two. And uh, so they they get kind of excited about it, but then they can't give up that food that they that they love so much. So they'll tend to slip off of it and maybe go back, just like people trying to quit cigarettes. Same thing. And so, but what happens? That, uh, is a light. The light at the end of the tunnel in this story is that if people start this and stick with it, got to take some willpower, right? And and some con- some conviction that the evidence is, re- is real. Let's say. If they stay with it for some people for a week, they're, they're, that's all they need. They're, they're off and running, especially people who have a disease and they see what it does. My God, they, they don't ever change. But other people, they might go, might need to go a month, maybe even two. What happens, our taste preferences change. What we once tasted and liked and loved, it begins to disappear. And the first thing you know, you crave a salad. Oh I mean, my God, I crave a salad. That's, that's. That's kind of crazy for a lot of people. They,
1: yeah, that's weird. Yeah.
2: And me too. And and so you say oh, I can't, I don't want to right now I crave a salad. I'm not just saying it just for the sake of any uh anything coming back to me, but I just crave a salad. We have salad every every day for lunch. Just a salad. It is so darn good. I I've never tasted food so good as that. And uh here I am. I was a hunter, I was a fisherman. I was I, Milked cows, and I even trapped fur-bearing animals. To be honest about it, so I came out of that mold, and uh, I I swear it's only because I've been lucky enough to be involved with the research that I was doing. And uh, now, you know, the things are changing. I have to tell you, it's uh, it's quite amazing. I it was in 1977, 78 or so when I was on a government panel, judging research applications or research application for funding from the government from NIH and places like that. I was on a committee on a, that judges' uh, request for funding for cancer research. That was my specialty in many ways. And uh, we started hearing something about maybe plants could do this or that. And so I had a chance to uh, explain to my colleagues, who are most of them are cancer researchers, they wanted me to explain to them what did I know about nutrition. I didn't know quite then what I know now, but in any case, I took a crack at it. And I, I didn't want to use the word vegetarian. Because that's not what I had, that's not what was motivating me. I called it plant-based. The reason I'm telling this crazy little story is because the word plant-based now is spreading, quite frankly, almost like wildfire around the world. It's really it's really coming aboard and it's hopeful. At least people are getting a sense that when we eat this kind of food, there's something good out there. You know, not not everybody's going whole, whole hog on this thing. That's the wrong, <laughs> wrong metaphor. But in any case, they get there. My son, my youngest son, uh, who uh, was actually in theater, came back to with me to write this book called The China Study. I guess you've heard of the China Study. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that we published that in two thousand and five, and at the time I published it, I, I I had been complaining about the pushback I was getting and stuff like that, and so my wife kept telling me all says Why don't you write a book? know just do it for the public and so i did i didn't i didn't expect to see much effect to be honest about it just to uh, do the best i could and it turned out that that book published in 2005 is still going strong now uh 16 years later uh it's, sell, it's sold well over three million probably close to four million copies now has been translated into 50 foreign languages around the world and uh So then the second book, that was 2000, came out in uh, 2005, Uh, was republished in an updated form in 2016. But in any case, I came out with a second book called Whole, that's W-H-O-L-E, to try to get into some more of the science, to explain, you know, this phenomenon of everything works together. That book was a New York Times bestseller, done well. And then the third book I just published last December. Talking about the future of nutrition, I spent a lot of time in government uh in government uh, policy making you know giving testimony before congressional committees and on government panels and that sort of thing and so i, I got a chance to see what goes on behind the curtain That's another part of my story yeah, what
1: um what what sources of animal protein are do people not uh they, they have the hardest time like you've been identifying they accidentally have it no matter how good they try to be, what have you discovered?
2: D- discover which one's the worst or the best one? I'm not sure what you're saying.
1: No, no. Um, you know, like, Let's say someone is trying to do, again, a plant-based diet. <clears throat> they're trying to do everything right, but they're accidentally having sources of animal protein. Like, What are hidden or unknown sources of animal protein that are not wow. obvious to people that they have?
2: Gosh, yes, yeah, good question. Probably dairy. Uh, the, the casein is put into a lot of products, I think. Uh, it is. In fact, uh various kind of already cooked product, you know, processed products, if you will. Uh casein, uh what else get milk? Obviously, you put milk in all kinds of recipes. That's uh, that's kind of hidden in a way. Kind of have to look at the labels. Uh and uh but is uh, most of most of the animal food we consume is really, you know, we know we're consuming it. Milk, meat, and eggs. It's a good old American diet, basically. <laughs> so Yeah, eggs. You can put eggs into things, as you know. A lot of cooking is use eggs, uses eggs, and you don't necessarily know that unless you look at the label.
1: And how about animal proteins versus sugar? You know, have you? Has anyone done studies on someone that has, let's say, significant animal protein but they're very low sugar diet, Um, or if, if again, someone cuts that animal proteins but they're still having quite a bit of sugar. How much is the positive
2: effect blunted? That's a really good question. That that refers to the point I was making before about vegans. Vegans give up animal protein or animal food because they're, they're obviously uh, in, interested because of animal rights. Uh, so they won't use animal food at all. But what they do instead, when they give up the animal protein, they'll tend to use quite a lot of sugar. And in fact, their average consumption of sugar is about the same as meat eaters. And, uh, you know vegetarian vegans and meat eaters they oh, about the same amount of sugar they still have problems they have some some benefit I have to say that their heart rate heart disease rate is a little lower um cancer rates are a bit lower too uh but it's uh kind of a little bit iffy uh it doesn't get the the, the big effects I think that you know this this idea can take so So I I haven't answered your question directly, you know, uh, which is worse, I think you're asking. Is it uh, sugar, is it animal protein, if you will? Um, The animal protein is a a bigger ticket to think about than the the sugar itself. Uh, Another one is added oil. Added oil is a problem. Um, What
1: do you you mean, like olive oil or canola oil or which oils are bad and why?
2: Right, cooking oils of any kind, salad oils. We, a lot of those oils uh, have what we call uh, omega-6 fats. And they, they are, we, we say, pro-inflammatory. They actually encourage cancer growth. They encourage uh, heart disease. They encourage other other mischief. Uh, those oils, they're actually from plants, believe it or not. They would think they should be good. They are good when in the whole food form. But when we extract them out, and then put it in a bottle and pour it all over everything. That's a different story, very different story. That's when this oil becomes, you know, problematic. It's like the vitamin thing I were talking about before. You take it out of its natural context, you got a different product. And uh, so, oils are addictive, and refined sugar is addictive, and and uh, so forth. Salt is obviously addictive. So, uh, what about you know, uh,
1: like butter or ghee uh, or cheese? What are your thoughts there?
2: Well, my the last food I gave up myself was cheese. I happen to have liked it, and uh, butter. Uh, yeah, butter is waffled back and forth. If you've followed that history at all over the last fifty years, but it was good and it was bad and it's good it as bad. It's a kind of a tricky story. But uh, the butter is uh, more saturated, which a lot of people thought was worse than the oil from the plants. That's not to, not the case. Uh, if anything, the butter is not as bad as the oils but still it's uh it's kind of you know if we're going to fill our gut up with a lot of fat then that's so to speak empty calories that we're not going to get into whole food benefits so that that there's a problem there for that but probably when, not when really they're serious
1: yeah when people transition to this way of eating do they do they tend to have problems do they go through a period of time where they don't feel well or is it a smooth transition for people
2: well, it's a, it's a very interesting question. I think most people will tell you that they they've never felt better. And that's what I almost always hear. Of course, maybe those people are the ones wanting to please me or wanting to tell me good things. I, I don't know, but I think that some people uh, they they start this, and the, the biggest problem they have with it is they they just don't have the taste for it, you know, and and so they react to it that way, and. You know, if you don't have the taste for it, then it's kind of a struggle mentally. And they'll tell you they feel this and they feel that. But uh, that all straightens itself out in pretty quick order, if there is any of that sort of thing. That didn't happen to me. I mean, you tend to lose weight. People tend to lose body weight. Um, and in many cases, dramatically. Blood sugar goes down, serum cholesterol drops, and so forth. And uh, people fl- start feeling more energetic. that That's clear. Every almost everyone will tell you that. You know, uh, world-class athletes who are at the peak of their condition, I'm talking about the really the best of the best, some of those folks have tried this and have actually gotten better. Um, I've gotten to know several several of them personally. I don't know whether you know Tony Gonzalez, who uh, was a tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs for many years and went to the Atlanta Falcons. And uh, he was a tight end. He was in his 11th year, which is a long time for football player, especially in that position. He got the, got the book and got excited about it. And he lost some weight in training session, called me up and wanted to know if this is for real. Just, you know, I said, yeah. So he, nobody goes much beyond 11, 12 years for a tight end. Well, anyhow, he went to, on to 17 years. He went to Atlanta Falcons and uh, hoping to get on the world championship team. And he played that that length of time. Uh, and he still was first in the league. At the time, for two or three years after the Falcons. yeah, was great. Yeah, and he now the whole thing. And John Sally is another one. He, the Spider Man, you may know that. He also got into this too. He, he was only, I guess, professional player been on three World Championship NBA teams, so he's he was into that. Carl Lewis, a runner, Scott Jurek, the mar- the uh, ultra marathon runner, who runs hundred and fifty mile races. He does he does this too. All most of the big runners all do that kind of thing. Uh, Monica, uh, Monica Sellis. I was going to say Monica. Whiskey, not there. Monica Sellis. And uh, so, who else? Let's see. Baseball. George Foster, if you know that name. I mean, these boys, boys I've I've met.
1: Okay. No, excellent. What, is there anything difficult about the way you eat? Or, you know, have you heard from other people, like, what's the most difficult things about it? And does it, does it difficult to go away after a time?
2: The most difficult thing probably for a lot of people are those who go out to, out to restaurants and a lot of people like to go to restaurants these days. And and I think that might be one of the most difficult things to go to a restaurant and they can't necessarily find on the menu what they want. We have found that if you go to a restaurant, most of them at least, you can tell them, you know, not to add to oil, we, we pick out just the plant-based options. so it works out okay. Uh, we tend to just kind of hang out in Asian restaurants and some other specialty restaurants, but that—that's been a. I mean, that's a, that's a social occasion. I mean, going to restaurants with your friends is a social occasion, so that's kind of hard to give up. You don't have to give it up, but it's a little bit tricky.
1: Is it is it possible to eat this way in a restaurant, or is it incredibly oh, yeah. difficult?
2: No, no, it's getting it's becoming more and more common. You'll find in most restaurants a vegetarian option. That's what they call it, and uh, we tend to get that and just tell them, you know leave off the. They'll tend to still use cheese, so we don't use that. I hated to give up at the time, but now I, I don't want it. So the, you know the vegan vegetarian options that you see on menus. You're probably not as old as I am, I'm sure, but I have seen the change. That uh, there was a time when you didn't even see those entrees on, on the menus, but now you see them on most menus. Yeah,
1: so, I figured it's gotten easier over time for sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So yeah. it's it's happening, and you see that kind of change. And so.
1: Okay. Well, excellent. Um. Colin, you know, we're close to the end. What Are you still actively researching? Like, what's next in terms of well, your discovery? Or do you think you found it? It just needs to be more widely adopted.
2: Well, I, I took my so-called emeritus position. I was a, a full full professor for many years. I was an endowed chair, actually, at Cornell. And having a delightful time, I, but I finally uh, decided to take an emeritus position, which means you still retain all the privileges, you know, the professorship, but uh, you can do what you want. You don't have to necessarily come in the office to stop. And so I've been an emeritus professor ever since. I've, and I've written those three books since I retired, since I took the position. So I, I lecture a lot. I've lectured extensively, even before the pandemic. I, I lecture a lot all over the world, actually. And I've given quite a lot. Of, I still give quite a lot of lectures now, virtually.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, that's excellent. I'm glad I had the chance to talk to you. Where can people go to find out more? Should they start with the China study book or which of your books, like how do they, if their interest has peaked, how do they get started?
2: My best suggestion, first suggestion is uh, a website called nutritionstudies.org. Nutritionstudies, Nutritionstudies, all one word, of course, .org. That, in any case, that is a program that was started with a nonprofit I had uh, online uh, teaching of this uh, material. It was very, turned out to be very successful. We did it in partnership with Cornell University, now it is fully embraced by Cornell University, so it's got a very good uh, professional standing. Uh, we've had more than 20,000-some some, uh, some uh, students, uh, and a lot of those students have gone off and done really, really good things, good, great things. That's one thing. And another thing that is the uh, organization that's headed up, by the way, this nutritionstudies.org, called the Center for Nutrition Studies. Uh, it's in my name, but in any case, it's my daughter, who is a doctor of education, she's the president of that, and she's—we're now in a position. We've got resources, and she's making loans to, to uh you know small grants to groups all over the world. Actually, the second website that people might be interested in is the uh, Plant Communities, PlantCommunities.org. I think it is another nonprofit that's composed of uh, I don't know what the latest count of maybe three hundred so-called wellness groups here and abroad. And uh, they do various and Sunday things. They're still kind of getting up to speed, but that, that group is uh is a really outstanding pods. We call them pods. That was organized by my oldest son. There's a film, by the way, uh Force the Eyes. You may or may not have seen that that probably I think that's the most successful documentary ever in 19 I mean, twenty And uh that was started with my work. I'm in the film, uh, as well as some others, um, other films. Plant Pure Nation is another one. My oldest son did that one, trying, you know, in an attempt to illustrate why people haven't heard this before. A lot of it's political. And um, so yeah, we got a you got a lot of things, different things go in those those websites and films that people watch, and and of course lots of okay. books. A lot of cookbooks. We have a China Study cookbook, that was my daughter did that, and another one called Plant Plant Pure Nation, a cookbooker. That's my daughter-in-law.
1: Okay well very good. Well Colin, it was really yeah. great to speak to you. I'm glad I got the opportunity and thank you for you know your decades of work and for your help of everyone so
0: if you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs.